Welcome to A Rock and a Hard Place, the podcast that explores why minerals matter, their importance to society, and the role they will play in the low-carbon future. I'm your host, Thomas Hale, a graduate student exploring the mineral security nexus at the University of Delaware in the Minerals, Materials, and Society program. Join me as I speak with leading experts in the field of critical minerals to discuss some of the most pressing challenges facing society and learn more about their experience working in this emerging space. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. I'm your host, Thomas Hale. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Linda Lawson, Senior Research Fellow at the Sustainable Minerals Institute in Australia. Dr. Lawson's research interests include small-scale mining, supply chains for gemstones, and opportunities for gender equity in the extractive sector. Her PhD, awarded in 2020, examined opportunities and challenges for women's empowerment in the gemstone value chain in Madagascar and Thailand. She is also a knowledge transfer specialist and has designed and led training and trained the trainer programs in the extractive industry in Africa, Asia, Australia, and South America. She is especially interested in education for the gem and jewelry sector and created instructional health and safety videos for gem cutters in Jaipur. Her special interest is in Madagascar, where her work is focused on remote and vulnerable populations, particularly female minors. She has also designed materials and led field training for women funded by Tiffany and Company Foundation. She is currently project manager and lead on the Knowledge Transfer and Delve Exchange, a new online network to facilitate knowledge sharing and support between small-scale mining associations. Thanks, Linda, for coming on the podcast. Looking forward to our conversation. So I'd like to start off by learning a little bit more about your current position and what led you into the career path of the Sustainable Minerals Institute. You know, what is SMI and what is your current work focus on? Okay, thanks, Thomas. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land from which I'm recording and acknowledging their contribution to learning across the generations, past, present and future. I'm talking to you today from the Sustainable Minerals Institute here in Brisbane. The Sustainable Minerals Institute is one of the world's leading research institutions. It looks at the process of mining right from extraction, processing and all the uh, aspects of mining related to ESG, environment, social and governance challenges I've been working there about 11 years now. What brought me there was an interest in Africa. I found out by some circuitous route that there were hundreds of Australian mining companies working in Africa. My interest was piqued. So I came to the Institute looking to do a PhD. I brought a strong background in training and professional development from my years working in Europe. And so one thing led to another and I've now completed my PhD and I'm still working there. At the moment, I'm working largely in small-scale minerals and doing some research with the World Bank and enabling different networks around the world of small-scale miners. So let's talk about that, artisanal and small-scale mining, or ASM. What is ASM opposed to large-scale mining, or LSM? How many people are involved in this sector, and why is it important that we bring up ASM when we look and talk about issues related to supply chains? ASM, artisanal and small-scale mining. Artisanal mining is mining with the most rudimentary tools, with a pick, with the sweat of your brow and the muscle of your back. Some people make a distinction. There is a distinction between artisanal and small-scale mining, but frankly, I see them as a continuum. Small-scale mining would involve having slightly more sophisticated tools. It could be mean that you own a wheelbarrow. You have maybe some level of mechanization, but essentially, when we're talking about ASM, we're talking about 
people who are mining with rudimentary tools and human labor. Now, it's very difficult to uh, estimate exactly how many people are doing this kind of mining. It's a massive livelihood today with probably more than 40 million people all over the world, concentrated, I guess, in developing countries. What is striking about it for me as a researcher with a strong interest in gender is that the opportunities that it provides for women to work that don't exist anywhere else. Contrasting with LSM, LSM is highly mechanized and relies on a much smaller workforce. In terms of the supply chains, I think that ASM has been rather demonized by films such as Blood Diamond, and there's so much more to small-scale mining than the exploitative narratives that are currently trotted out everywhere. Sure, there are some very, very, very challenging conditions, and I don't want to romanticize that, but it's so much more than that. ASM is driven by poverty. One of its characteristics is that there are low barriers to entry. So this enables women, for example, to make a bit of a living, to use small-scale mining in different ways, in strategic ways, to pay maybe for their kids' school fees or perhaps to buy a piece of land, or very often in Africa, the women told me that it was used for things like funerals. This is such an essential part of culture in many developing countries, and they go mining to pay for a particular need. So in a way, some of the skills that are required are very similar to agricultural laboring skills. So there's often a parallel there. In my research, I found that ASM actually represented a kind of a ladder of opportunities for people, but with some gates along the way that could mean that they progressed or they didn't. In terms, a little bit more about ASM uh, in terms of the commodities mined, my work is on coloured gemstones and it's estimated that 80% of the world's coloured gemstones are mined artisanally. I think this is changing. It might be closer to 70 now with companies like Fura and Gemfields really beginning to make an impact. So a large proportion of gemstones, particularly sapphires, are mined by small-scale miners. Maybe 20% of the world's gold is mined artisanally, and this is a really challenging area because much of this gold is processed using mercury. And as you may know, there is a ban on the use of mercury, but getting people to change habits when mercury in Indonesia, for example, is the price of salt and they have a very quick and dirty method of making some money and gold at nearly $2,000 an ounce or something like that, it's very difficult to argue that some slower, maybe more environmentally friendly method is better, is a challenge. I'd just like to also mention some of the other minerals that are mined artisanally. There's a whole range of minerals that are used in construction. We've coined the term development minerals because they contribute to the development of a country rather than being exported, as, for example, gold is typically. So sand, gravels, granites, things that are used for construction of cities that are burgeoning all over the world, and also increasingly minerals used in, in new technologies for the transition to a cleaner greener future for us. For example, at the moment, we're working with a group of manganese miners in Indonesia, small-scale miners. I think it's really interesting, too, because you bring up gold being a big issue, gemstones. And of course, I have done some stuff on cobalt. I mean, a lot of these commodities and metals have some sort of relationship to artisanal mining. Just this week, I saw that Ecuador talked about having a national security issue with gold mining, illegal gold mining. You know, we saw Brazil has led some government raids on gold mining facilities. But there are a lot of other commodities, which I think is what you bring up, which is gemstones. And a lot of conversations that have been out there today is about 
why this sector needs to be removed or dehumanizing some of these people. So I would like to talk a little bit more about when you talk about not dehumanizing this sector, what does this mean? What should we be doing about artisanal small-scale mining? You know, what is the best route when we're trying to improve ESG issues and standards around where we source our metals? Because you hear a lot of it in the news, but there are a lot of people that are attached to this that I think we often forget about. Let me take you to Malawi, 12 kilometers out from the capital, Lilongwe, and you'll see 30 to 40 women working in a field. If you look carefully at the field, you can identify groundnuts, peanuts, and maize, and other food crops. And the women have got a small pick, a small hoe, I guess is the word, they're holding in their hand. And if you watch them, you think, oh yeah, they're weeding their peanuts, they're doing some kind of agricultural work. But if you move a little closer, you'll see that they're pulling things out of the ground and wrapping it in the corner of their sarong. And as I approach them and start talking to them, I find that they're actually mining beautiful, beautiful pink rhodolite garnet. They greeted me as I spoke to them. They use this pick both to weed and to pick out their stones. There are some definite dangers because obviously, if you know you're onto a vein of beautiful gemstones, you're going to dig deeper and deeper. And I'm not minimizing the risk in that very soft, sandy soil. So what happens is they take the garnet out from the corner of their sarong and they'll sell it on to middlemen. And this is usually sold on to the Chinese and Indian market to be cut and polished in one of the big centers like Jaipur in India or Bangkok or possibly machine cut in China for a fraction of the price that they're actually selling them on for. So here's an example, I think, of you know, some of the challenges and some of the untold stories that these women are using. They're farming and they're mining. And there are issues there to sort out in terms of how to rehabilitate the land so that it, it will grow crops well after they've been digging for stones. But for me, a massive issue is why are so many of the stones sold on with so little value left in the country in terms of, until very recently, there were no cutting facilities. In Malawi, there are now, there's been some nice changes recently, and an online platform for selling gemstones has been created through a group called Virtue Gems. So some things are coming up, but it's usually the case in these countries that the stones are just sold on, and the women have no idea what they're really worth, and they might use them to buy. Typically, they said to me, oh, buy some soap or things that I need for my daily life, you know, where they should get more than that. And there should be more opportunities for African design, African ideas, African beneficiation all along the way there. I'd like to take you somewhere else. It's in Madagascar. It's in the southwest. It's near Sakaraha, Akaka, the very famous sapphire gem fields, which produced some of the most beautiful gemstones in the world. And these stones, these sapphires, they come in every color of the rainbow. Normally we think of sapphires as blue, but in fact the stones that are coming out of this area are what they call the rainbow line, the color line, the rainbow line, with maybe up to 50 stones going from a clear stone right through to red, and as you may know, a red sapphire is a ruby. But these women, let me tell you about them, typically I'll find them in the river and they'll be washing through this gravel hoping to find a few little sapphires that will glint out. Now, the story of these women I find really interesting. They're not locals. They've come as a group, usually as a family group, from the very south of Madagascar. Now, they typically would tell me they've come because the crops that they used to grow in the south 
are no longer able to be grown. There are just too many droughts. There's just too many impacts. Possibly we can call these women climate change refugees. And the families have saved up and sent one of their younger women up to these fields to try their luck at taking out gemstones. And again, this money is sent back. Any money they can make is sent back to these communities to buy fields, to buy zebu, the local cattle, which are very prized. And so there's a whole story there. These are far from demonized, destroying environment people. They've got their own story and each is different and interesting. You know, we looked at different ways of taking the processing of the stones onto the side of the river. The women do suffer from quite a lot of different illnesses in terms of malaria and any waterborne diseases you can imagine. It's not a romantic picture, but it's an interesting and real picture with many, many facets to it. So typically they're there in the bright morning sun. If they find a gemstone that's of value, that will be again sold on to a middleman, usually a man, usually a Malagasy man, who then will sell it on to this time a Sri Lankan buyer. And again, these stones are taken out to be processed in Sri Lanka or in Bangkok. It's estimated that 80% of the sapphires in Bangkok are actually from Madagascar, but they may be rebranded as Sri Lankan. So again, we see that there are many issues related to value addition. It's not to say that there isn't a fantastic tradition in Madagascar of making jewellery, and there is the Institute of Gemology where women and men can be taught lapidary, but the price of these courses is actually prohibitive for most of these people. One of the challenges here that we'll talk about, all of these women are operating in the informal sector, and they're not getting a fair price. These stories are really fascinating. And I guess as someone who is from the United States looking at these issues around artisanal and small-scale mining, how do we share these stories? What are your recommendations as a researcher on the ground meeting with these communities to make sure that we give a voice to these people? So how do we share these stories and how do we find practical, meaningful solutions to the ASM sector than just trying to eliminate it necessarily, which is what you often hear out a lot in these policy discussions? Look, I've tried my best in the last seven years or eight years to tell those stories. I have a few publications. We have a few films that we've made. I think that we need to show that there is progress. I really want to say that it's not a perfect situation. We've had some great initiatives, but with the German government put in place a lapidary center for the women of Sakuraha, which was a, a great joy. It still needs a lot of handholding and I'm very glad to say that one of the large-scale miners of gemstones, Fura Gems, has started to work with these women and looking at ways that they can be a win-win because obviously they want to tell a story of their own contribution to communities and the women themselves want better futures for their own kids and so on. One thing I'd like to say, a very big issue that many people will talk like a huge alarm bell is the whole issue of child labour. And sure, I think you need to really understand that there are different types of child labor and there's no way in the world that I'd be condoning any of the worst forms of child labor where it's a servitude, a slave relationship and children are put in danger. But there are other sides to this and sometimes I would see women working together with their kids. The kids might go to school in the afternoon, but you see a woman, you know, maybe in her early 50s who needs reading glasses and she doesn't have them and her 12-year-old is beside her helping her to identify stones. What astonished me was the knowledge about gemstones that these kids have, that they could help their mum pick them out 
And one of my dreams that has never been realized because it's such a sensitive topic is, but how could we have a, a system of school that would complement the work that the women are doing that would enable them to learn about their gemstones and add value to them and to understand a little bit about the science of gemstones? Because in the reality, these kids are going to follow their parents into this area. But if they went in with a little bit more of an understanding of what gemstones are about and what the value chain looks like, you know, it would be a great addition. So I was always talking to the mayors and authorities about this. I'm a great believer in education and training. At the end of the day, the women who learned to lapidary skills in the workshop in Sakuraha are now skilled lapidary workers who can work anywhere across Madagascar, cutting and polishing gemstones. Talking about education and training and adding value, is this a place where we talk about subjects such as formalization could assist with? I mean, what does formalization necessarily mean in the ASM sector? And is part of that education and training? Is it permitting? Is it legal authorization through the government? But when you think of formalization in the context of your, your research, you know, what are the bounds by which these communities would formalize? Well, first of all, you have to ask yourself why. Why would you formalize? Given that up to 90% or more of all the business in Africa is in the informal sector, why are you placing this huge formal kind of dampener and blanket on top of miners who are already struggling. I understand formalization and why it's touted and how important it is in lots and lots of ways, but it's important if it improves ESG standards. It's important if it can improve access to market and access to value addition opportunities in education. So what I think in terms of from my research and my thinking about this, what I think is needed is a progressive form of formalization which builds in steps for capacity building at each step of the way, you know, so that people are not um, excluded from the process of formalization. Because if you have limited literacy skills and limited transport, limited finance, you're going to be excluded. And women are often in that case, whereas those who are, you know, already the mayor and the mayor's wife, of course, they'll be right up the top of the formalization process. So you, you've got to think carefully if that uh, well-intentioned initiatives can actually backfire and, and actually exclude people that you're trying actually to get into the process. So some people move into the formal sector, some will stay in the informal sector. This is just the reality and don't expect mining to be really different to that. No, I mean, that's very well said. And I think that your arguments there and the perspective that you put on that is very well needed in this space because a lot of people have different ideas about formalization, but I think it's a very practical way when you talk about that. And I guess the last question I have around ASM is, there's all these global conversations and we'd be talking about those conversations. Are the communities that you're meeting with aware of the discourse and dialogue around what they're doing? And what are their thoughts when they hear these global countries coming to them and saying that you need to change the way that you mine or change the way that you do things? Look, to start with, I think that so many miners really want to get into the supply chain. They want to be able to sell their products, you know, they know that. Having someone in the middle who can help interpret these standards in a way that's realistic and helpful is what's needed, you know. I was just talking yesterday to someone operating in Niger, a good friend actually, and he said, we realize that to sell our gold into Europe now, we've got to conform to some of these standards, but it seems such a very long way to go. We need skilled local people 
that can understand and facilitate these conversations and build in some progression. Because the worst thing that can happen is that people are excluded from the market altogether. Lack of understanding of the local situation that can actually be such a heavy-handed dampener on them. I think we need to have a, a deeper understanding and a little bit more flexibility in the way we move forward as far as formalization is concerned. One thing I would just say that struck me very recently about the demonization of the ASM sector. Why are you not telling some of the other stories? Because when you manage media, you know what? It just magnetizes. It's just drawn to the worst aspects. So we need to be careful what we say and the stories we tell. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that this conversation around ASM is only going to become more important. And it's really important that we know that there are people like yourself and, and other researchers that are really trying to put this out there. And, and in my conversations, the work that I do, making sure that we always have this understanding of practical solutions and not just making these broad claims that could end up impacting other people across the world is really important. So I really do appreciate bringing that perspective. So this wraps up part one of my conversation with Linda. Join us for part two as we discuss further the role women play in both ASM and LSM sectors, specifically the challenges, opportunities, and unique roles they play throughout the mining life cycle and even during post-mining remediation. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Rock in a Hard Place. Be sure to follow me on LinkedIn and check out our website, Mineral Choices, for more content. If you would like to be a guest on our podcast or contribute to our website, then please reach out. We love hearing from you, so do get in touch. And until next time, keep on rocking.